This week on the Parlay in All Blue, we are joined by historian Dr. Brian Mitchell. He is the Director of Research and Interpretation at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, where he focuses on Reconstruction. Previously, he was a professor at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, and he's also written the book Blood in Their Eyes, The Elaine Massacre of 1919, as well as the graphic novel Monumental, Oscar Dunn and His Radical Fight in Reconstruction, Louisiana. Now, our discussion, this long discussion, is about Reconstruction. It's a very, very important and understudied and intentionally obfuscated topic in American history. And it's important that we study it and it's important that we have these conversations. And let me say this, a podcast nor a documentary, and certainly not a podcast then, is no replacement for study. But I hope that this is a portal to whet your appetite and go and look at other things and how they relate to today. The period of Reconstruction happens at the end of the Civil War when the formerly enslaved are now becoming citizens into the United States. Talks about the Civil Rights Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th. And the counterpart, the Black Colts, which were meant to enslave them by another name. But note this, that this period is a period that is about black agency and black power and black people finding their way and forming their institutions and exercising their rights as citizens. It is equally about white supremacist political backlash and violence. Listen, there's a lot in this episode, so I'm going to cut it short here, but I urge you to find time to take it all in. It's a very important episode and timely episode of the Parlay in All Blue with me, Mark Dawson. I want to thank you for sticking with us and thank you for joining us. Dr. Brian Mitchell, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am excellent, brother. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. And I am so glad that we have this time, this opportunity today to talk about Reconstruction. And I will start with, for everyone in our audience, including me, if a documentary does not replace study, then certainly a podcast can't replace study. And Reconstruction is such a complex and overlap. There's a lot of there's a lot of things happening at once in the country or what have you. And so we won't be able to nearly drain it all. But we at least want to whet the appetite of why it's important to study and why we should take more time with it and how it informs today. And so that's just for everybody else. I know that you, you've got that, but I just want to make sure that our audience understands that we can't get to it all. Anyway, Dr. Mitchell, I want to start with two questions. What is Reconstruction and why is it important? Reconstruction is the period that immediately follows the Civil War. After the Civil War, there's a lot of things going on. The Emancipation Proclamation is passed. The president is working on the 13th Amendment, which will allow for, um, which will outlaw 
slavery, except, and you've got to put, you remember this exception because it becomes important toward the end of Reconstruction, except as a punishment for a crime. So there's a question of, okay, what do we do with all these people? There were over 2 million African-Americans that are roaming around the country, no place to call home, nowhere to go, looking for family members, following these troops back and forth. They've now over 200,000 of them joined the war effort. And what most of us were not taught in school, that, that that is really the turning point in the war. That is the introduction of 200,000 fresh troops is what pushes the Union over the Confederacy to a point that the Confederacy, it, it has no more troops that they can raise. Black people aren't going to go fight for them. So at the end of the war, there's this huge looming question. And uh, being from New Orleans, there's a lot of stuff that happened. New Orleans was a central point, as New York was in the Harlem Renaissance. And people looked at New York as the contemporary. For antebellum America, New Orleans was that for African-Americans who were free. It was the most cosmopolitan city. It was where all the wealthy people lived. It was where all the uh, many of the educated blacks in America lived. And they were at, at the helm of trying to change what was going on in America. So on the eve of this, right before um, Abraham Lincoln's assassination, 1,500 free black men went to Economy Hall. And they got together and they said, look, this is our time now to petition the president of the United States and ask him to make us citizens because the third, the 14th amendment had not been passed. So the question of, you know, what are African-Americans? Are they citizens of states? Are they citizens of the, of the nation? Are they just illegal people who are just floating around in the country? So these 1500 men that get together decide to send two men to go see president Lincoln. And they, they, they're really careful in selecting the two men that they sent. They send a man by the name of Arnold Birdnow. And Arnold Birdnow, I'll tell you a little bit about both of these men. And they see, send a man by the name of um, Rudinez, Louis Rudinez. Both these men were, were fairly young. In the case of Arnold Birdnow, he had served in the Union forces. In fact, he was an officer, he was a lieutenant in the, the Union forces. He was a wine merchant. Before the war started, uh, he was pretty well healed. He was both of these men were finely educated. Both of them spoke English and French fluently. But most importantly, both of them physiologically appeared to be white. Very fair skinned, very thin hair. And they they were these these fifteen hundred men that selected these two men to go were very, very conscious of what white America would think if dark-skinned men went there, that they might not be received by the president. They might be turned away flatly. So they they chose these two men, and they sent a petition with the 1,500 names on it. That petition still exists today. You can go to NARA, the National Archives, and see that petition today. When they get there, the men are admitted, and they actually meet Lincoln. And Although we don't have personal letters that Lincoln sent them, correspondences that that Lincoln sent them, we know that he he was extremely impressed with them. 
because in the very last speech he gives, days before he's going to be assassinated, he mentions them. And he mentions the free Black people of Louisiana and the possibility of giving these men limited enfranchisement, allowing those people that had served and had been educated to possibly join and become citizens of the United States. Well, none of us are taught this, or few of us are taught this, but in that audience that's listening to the last speech is John Wilkes Booth. And he becomes so enraged at that speech that he decides he, he has to assassinate the president of the United States. So the thing that he was upset about is this idea that African-Americans were going to become citizens and they were going to get the vote at the same time that Confederates have been stripped of their right to vote. So there's a lot to unpack there. That's very important. I appreciate that. And with Lincoln's assassination and before Lincoln's assassination, had Reconstruction already begun and had the ideas of citizenship been worked out? Or what did that have to do with in terms of shaping what Reconstruction would be become? Now, you have to remember what I, what I said earlier, that so many things hinge on Louisiana, and okay. particularly the city of New Orleans. The city of New Orleans was a strategic point in the war. Yes. Farrakhan and Butler decide to take the city of New Orleans and take various points along the Mississippi River, to eliminate the potential for Confederate cotton to get out. And killing cotton killed their stream of money that they could have gotten from England. It killed any plans of having England as an ally. They took the city of New Orleans in 1863. Okay. They decide to occupy and control that city. It's too valuable for us just to leave a small contingent of troops there for them to come take it back. We have to hold this city. So it becomes the first city that is administered entirely by the Union Army. You have to remember that there were free blacks that lived there. And those free blacks had been required by the Confederacy to join the Native Guard to show their loyalty to the Confederacy. So immediately as Butler began to take over the city, the Confederates left. But the free blacks stayed. And the free blacks immediately surrender and want to join the Union Army. And Lincoln will allow that to happen, will allow that to happen. And that that will be the turning point, as I started off in the war, was the introduction of of free men who are willing to fight. And they have more on the line than anybody else in this fight. Yeah. And so then we're, we're putting then the start of Reconstruction in 1863. When does it end? And we're going to get into some of the things that happened between sort of the beginning and the end. But I just at least want to set some basic boundaries for the for the audience. The ending of Reconstruction in my classrooms I teach is a compromise that is reached between Republicans, white Republicans and Democrats. The election of 1876 ends in a tie. And to ensure that the Republicans have the presidency, Republicans will betray their black voters. And what I mean by betraying their black voters 
is they will agree to withdraw all the troops that have been protecting them. They will agree not to intervene in any affairs, no matter how violent they get in the American South. And black voters are left to the mercies of white Democrats who have now forged this partnership to allow Hayes to ascend to the presidency. So I I use that compromise, and that compromise is struck in the year 1877. It's often referred to as the Compromise of 1877. Okay. Then just for purposes of this discussion, we have between 1863 and 1877. And I listen, I'm not going to go through this every time we talk about it, but I just want to say for those listening is that in the 1800s, Republicans are the progressive party and the party where black people initially align politically and Democrats are the conservatives and the party of of the what will then be the former Confederates that come back into the union just so that that we keep that square. So when we talk about Reconstruction, is it a formal government program or is it a period like civil rights if we went from 1954 with Brown versus Board to 68 with the Fair Housing Act civil rights is a period of activity of political activity where black people are kind of second reconstruction <laughs> it's kind of a second reconstruction but there wasn't a formal program called civil rights like or is Reconstruction more akin to the New Deal, where it's a it's a set of activities under one umbrella? To understand Reconstruction, you really have to understand the Civil War. The Civil War has ended, has been a brutal, bloody roar that has pit, pitted um, family against family, states against states. And Abraham Lincoln has committed himself to trying to heal the nation after this, bring us all back together again. He has a plan to bring us all back together. And his plan is often referred to as presidential, the presidential reconciliation of the nation. And his plan is, look, I'm not going to be too punitive on the rank and file soldiers. I'm not going to be too punitive on on even the officers. But the the people at the top, the top handful of people, I'm going to go hard on them. And I'm just going to get everybody to swear that they'll never do anything like this again. And if when 10 percent of those states go ahead and swear that, then I'm good. You can come back into the union. Then the assassination takes place and people are like, wait a second. There's still Confederates out there. And there were people who said, no, no, these are just a a handful of hardened, you know, um, haters of the president. 1866 rolls around. And in 1866, there'll be two riots in the South. The first one will happen in Memphis. The second one will happen in New Orleans. And this alarmed Congress because they said, if these people are willing to rise up and have guns, and a lot of these people are in the local governments there, we can no longer trust those governments. So they they said, we have to take over the entire Confederacy and divide it into districts and let union officers run those districts. So the South was divided into five districts, and each five each of those five districts was assigned a general that would lead that district. 
Okay, so we have the end of the Civil War. We have 1863 as a a big strategic point in terms of the war turning and the taking of New Orleans. Then we have the end of Civil War in 1865 and Lincoln's assassination shortly after that. And then in 1866, because of political violence, and I want to dig on that a little bit more. I want to actually spend some time on that. Then the government begins to say, hey, you know what? The old South or the country isn't going to readily accept black people as citizens, black people as voting or just having rights of citizenship. And there's violence. And then the country says, "Okay, we got to do something formal. And so the well, not only do they have that, but they also have a president who's a former slave owner. Johnson Mm -hmm. takes over after the assassination. Johnson's in support of the white Democrats who were down there and in support of the slave owners. And he allows them to then write these very localized laws called black codes that really were meant to re-enslave the people that just got freed. So imagine you've just been freed and the, the county you live in or the parish, if you're in Louisiana, you live in, passes a law that says if you don't have a domicile, then you can be arrested and brought back to the plantation where you're a slave and then made to work for your room and board. Now, I mean, in essence, he was re-enslaving those people that had just been freed by the 13th Amendment. And so we have we have two things kind of happening at once. We have Johnson, President Johnson, who comes into the presidency after Abraham Lincoln, who's no friend of, of black folks. <laughs> Let's no just friend say that. of black folks. And, at, you know, his, his, his move will, will cause him to have rivals in the Senate and the House who will then try to impeach him. Yeah. And so we have we have that. And then we have the South, the former Confederate states implementing these laws through the black holes, which are essentially enslavement by another name through vagrancy laws, through sort of when someone's in prison and then using the labor for free and all of those things just to re-enslave people in another way without calling it slavery. Yeah, it's con- it, convict leasing is convict um, leasing, the system yes. that emerges from from these codes and, and that loophole that we were just talking about in the 13th Amendment, except as punishment for a crime, allows for a system to be created that lo- allows for legalized slavery. And that system still exists today. In fact, there's a movement in our nation right now to take out that little caveat that's inside of the 13th Amendment. Yeah. And, and hey, listen, we won't be able to get to everything, but in the scandal that's happening in Mississippi right now over the misuse of the welfare funds and one of the text messages from Brett Favre, who's kind of at the center of this, to uh, either the governor or someone in the state, someone in the state apparatus of suggesting that perhaps we could use convict labor to complete some of the projects that he's talking about. But that's that's a whole nother thing. I want to make sure that we get a good start on Reconstruction. So what we're saying is, is that what brings about Reconstruction is a number of things that are happening simultaneously or close to simultaneously at the Civil War. The agency of black people, as you described, of the free people of color in New Orleans and meeting with the president, the idea of black men 
because it was just men at that point voting as they think the violence that's that's set up that is occurring. But you can't you can't forget the 14th Amendment. When we talk about the summer of 1866, the, yep. the hot topic, the thing that Congress is working on that has the Confederates so upset is the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment is is what? The 14th Amendment will define what citizenship is and create this concept that we have now of birthright citizens. The Dred Scott case, Sanford versus Sanford v. Scott, in that ruling, it said that no person of African-American descent was a citizen of a state, any state, or the United States. In fact, it said that we were property and we had no rights that were or that were to be respected by whites. So if you were in the middle of a house transaction after that, the white person could say, I'm not paying you anymore. And there's nothing you could do about it. Absolutely nothing. We could not petition courts after that. We were just property to be bought and sold, even if you were free, even if you were free. In the state where I was teaching at, Arkansas, there's, and I'm working on a book on this right now, immediately after they passed the, the ruling in the Dred Scott case, they passed a law called Act 151. And the act kicked out every free black person in the state. They said, you have to leave by January 1st or you will be sold. Wow. And so this is after Dred Scott? It's after Dred Scott. So Dred Scott left this huge question of citizenship. Now you got all these free people roaming around. Nobody knows where they're a citizen. They don't have a right to go before. Uh, if what, what happens if, if they're killed by somebody? Does a person just get off? Can they purchase property? So th- it's a huge question. And what they decide to do is say in the 14th Amendment that anyone born anyone born in these United States is a citizen of the United States. And there's also an equal protection clause in there that says you have to treat all citizens, what? The same, regardless of their race, their religion, and their um, national origin, their previous, you know, where their, their ancestors were from. So now this puts all conveniences that have only been limited to white people, now Blacks can exercise all the same freedom. Confederates saw this as flipping over the table. In fact, their whole the whole antebellum social order of the South was built around slavery. Black people, they were different classes of white people. They were white people who worked like slaves. They were white people who own their farms, and, but work their farms. And then there were the wealthy people. And, and the wealthy people define themselves quite literally as the slave-owning class. Mm-hmm. So how do we define ourselves now when the slaves can do exactly the same thing we can do? They can go wherever we want to go. A rich Black man can go buy a house right next to next door to you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So what I'm hearing is, and, and so when I'm when I was asking, is reconstruction to sort of one program is actually a number of things that are happening uh, where the federal government is reacting to what to do with the formerly enslaved people, and then how do we give them 
legal protections. And then it sounds like in 1866, with the establishment of the district's physical military protection as well. Exactly. All right. So we've got that. That so Reconstruction is really about creating citizenship, a, a framework for citizenship for black folks and then bringing the former Confederate states back into the the union. The passing of the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments during Reconstruction were the largest social leap that African-Americans have made in the United States. OK. All right. So. I want to want to pause there for a minute. And so there's a lot of things that are happening legislatively. And you just talked about the Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th and 15th. And we have also the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And we'll get to 1875 later. But just give me a sense of the attitudes of black America during this times in terms of education or owning land or reuniting families just just what was what was happening with black america culturally during this time okay there, there were several things black people were moving around for the first time all over the place without white control that's scaring whites and particularly in rural areas that need black labor terrifying them the federal troops also have got to figure out how do we feed these people? How do we house these people? How do we clothe these people? So the federal the federal government will, in 1865, start what they call a, the Bureau of, Bureau of Refugees and Abandoned Lands, and, and, and actually becomes later the Freedmen's Bureau. And this is meant to help African-Americans who are wandering around because they, they're off of plantations to survive. The Bureau we realize we got to get the South back to growing. You know, agriculture was the mainstay of the South. So we've got to figure out a way for that agriculture to continue, but we can't have them exploiting blacks. So one of the first things that they do is set up commissioners throughout the South who will help African-Americans write their contracts, work contracts, and make sure that they're not being uh, fairly uh, treated. Now, you have to ask yourself, why do you have to have commissioners write contracts for you? Why can't they just go do this on their own and say, hey, you know, you want my labor. This is how much it's worth. Well, they had never been paid. They'd never many of these people never been educated. So they had no they had no idea what the value of their labor was. So in these contracts, you see a lot of things you'll see breaks, uh, established break times. You'll see establishment for uh, for every hundred or so families that are working there, a school has to be erected for them. For every hundred or so families that are working there, a church has to be erected for them. They're asking for Sundays off so they can attend the church. So you begin to see all sorts of conditions which aren't necessarily favorable to the, the white planners emerge in these contracts. And this is where uh, Dunn, Dunn, who had um, been born a slave, freed at 10 years old, his name is Oscar James Dunn. And he was a black man, a free black man from the city of New Orleans, who was born a slave, but was fortunate enough that his mother married a man from Virginia, a free black man who was a carpenter. And that black man freed him and all of the children that he would have with uh, the mother also. So 
Dunn and his daughter are freed. And this changes Dunn's life because Dunn is able, his father's wealthy enough where he can go to school. He becomes educated, but he had been working as a plasterer, as most free black men in the city did. He was a tradesman, but he didn't like working with his hands. You know, he, he, he wanted to work using his head and he sees this as an opportunity. So as soon as they start writing contracts, he gets a job writing these contracts and he goes not just all over Louisiana writing contracts, but all over Mississippi writing contracts. And, you know, people start seeking him out because he's asking for these really high rates for these planters to pay his, uh, to pay these uh, freedmen. And so he becomes really well known because of that. He was also a Freemason and Freemasonry was a network. And, And as a network, as a brotherhood, as a fraternity, when we start talking about the Underground Railroad, when we talk about the establishment of AME churches, none of these things could happen without a network of people who had money and collaborate their resources to get things done. And Dunn was the head of Louisiana's Free Black Masons, their Prince Hall Masons. So Dunn is in a natural position to really sort of win the support of the enslaved, the formerly enslaved people. Another thing about Dunn is this experience that he's had at being born a slave. A lot, of, there were a lot of free free people in Louisiana, there were tens of thousands of them, but not all of them could claim that they were born a slave. So they, not all of them could say, look, I know where you've been. I've been there too. And if you were the son of a white planter and you've been free pretty much every day of your life, then, you know, how could you relate to these people who had been enslaved? But Dunn could, because he could always fall back on, until I was 10 or 10 years old, I was a slave too. I know what it meant to be owned by somebody. So um, Dunn is able to transcend this. And this is why when they start looking for men who can represent them, when the slaves have the vote later on, and they want people that will represent their interests. They don't want black men that used to own slaves because their daddy owned the plantation. They want people like Dunn that had been slaves who know what the slave experience was like and wasn't interested in exploiting them. Dunn also becomes an outspoken advocate for children who were born in bondage because there were a lot of children who were separated from their families. And they didn't have families to run off to. So the planner said, well, why don't we start an apprenticeship program and we're going to keep the kids and we're going to feed them because they don't have anybody else but us. And Dunn's like, no, 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 no. We all will. We'll pull our money and open our own orphanages before we let y'all enslave these children. Right. So he, he becomes an advocate for these for the enslaved people that they trust. Okay, so we have within Black America right now, what I'm hearing is freedom of movement. I'm going to get paid for for my labor. We have institutional building. You mentioned like the AME church and schools. And then we have also leaders emerging. And Oscar Dunn is a prime example of that. Stop for a little bit on the children there. And I also want to ask about some other leaders within in that time frame. 
What about education? What's the minds of Black folks about education at, during this period of Reconstruction just after slavery? There, there's a quote I love that's in a, a book on Blacks in education, and it says that the Blacks first did not run for the food lines, but ran began asking for education for their children immediately following the war. They realized the difference between the educated Blacks and those that are born in slavery that didn't have education. They see the huge strides that they're able to make and, and the education made in men's lives, like Dunn. You know, the, the difference in his life was education. The biggest difference was being freed and achieving an education changed his entire life. So Blacks want that. And that's what they're asking for. They're asking the, uh, the Freedmen's Bureau set up schools for our children, set up schools, and these schools become targets. And when we start talking about white terrorism, these schools become targets, and they're often burnt down. And the people who are teaching in the schools are people who are coming from the North. Um, Many people from the AME Church, from the Methodist Church, are coming from the North and and coming down to teach in in these small rural schools. In uh, cities like New Orleans, where where Blacks are pouring into from the rural countryside because they feel safer and because they want to find family members, they begin teaching school out of the Black churches there. So Dunn's wife, and he he marries a widower. In fact, he he had been a boarder in her and her husband's boarding house before he marries her. He marries her, and she's from a, a wealthy Ohio black family. Her father was a runaway slave also. He, he was a slave that ran away from Kentucky. Brilliant man. He uh, is an inventor. He invented something called the Boyd bed, which was a folding collapsible bed that you could put on the back of wagons, on the wagon trains. And he becomes a multimillionaire in Ohio. And she's a teacher at this time. So during this point, She's a teacher and, and Dunn reconnects with her while um, they're both working, you know, inside of Reconstruction New Orleans. And another thing that black people did and, and Dunn does this is blacks have been denied the right to marry one another because that just made it very, very easy to separate these families. And so another thing that you'll start seeing in 1865 and 1866 are mass weddings. So blacks will go to these AME churches and you'll see 15 couples every day get married, you know, in these mass weddings. And it wasn't that they didn't know each other. They just met each other. Some of these people had been together for decades, had kids, but they wanted legal, recognized marriages. They didn't want, you know, just hop in the broom or these customs that they had done within the plantations, they wanted to, to make sure that their children were legally recognized as their offspring and that, that they had some connection that was protected by law. So to me, when I hear this, when I hear institution building, control of my labor, identifying leadership, desiring education, rebuilding families, I'm hearing what what I would term as black power. I mean, you know, I know that black power is a something that is coined in in maybe the 1960s. But this reconstruction sounds like a period of black power to me. 
It is. It is. And you're just hearing the beginning of it because as it goes on, black people like Frederick Douglass said, well, we need to start building economic power. And this is one of the things that Dunn and Dunn's close friends were all about. They said, if you just give us freedom and we don't have economic freedom, then we're just going to be late uh, wage slaves and they're going to be able to control our destiny. If we if we integrate our organizations and make all organizations interracial, then they're, they're just going to come in and take the leadership positions and these places where we could plan will disappear. He says, so we have to have our own stuff. And this is where he will have a huge divide from some of the the free blacks who had really been born, uh, particularly those who had had parented parents, fathers who were white men who wanted to be in these clubs and associations and things that, that their fathers had been in. That meant something in the white community. Dunn didn't want that. Dunn said, look, he said, if they don't want you at their theater, we, we're going to pool our money. We're going to buy our own theater. If they don't want you in their restaurant. We're going to pool our money and start our own restaurant. In fact, he started something, a collective called the Bakery for the People. And it was modeled after German collectives where everybody and, and this, you know, when we talk about the UNI under Marcus Garvey, very similar to that, where everybody puts in a little bit of money. They open one business. And he said, we got to start with bake bakeries because bakeries were the staple. Bread was the staple of the diet. He said, let's start there. And he said, then we'll buy other businesses and we'll employ our own. We'll own it collectively. And he said, we'll we'll go business by business till we have everything we need. Yeah. So I'm going to pause right there because my own family's story on my mother's side, Joseph Reddick, who would be called, I guess, great, great grandpa Joby was born in born in bondage, born a slave post bondage. He becomes a baker a caterer, and he's the first landowner in Hale County there in central central Alabama, which was where a big populace right there in the in the sort of the black belt where the soil is rich. And so that so when you're saying that I'm chuckling on the inside. And when, you know, members of my family hear this, Dunn's sort of leadership is very reminiscent of of our family story. I want to broaden the lens a little bit from Oscar Dunn, and I want to come back to him at the same time in Louisiana and what's happening in other states like Mississippi and South Carolina, just sort of what what is happening there during Reconstruction? Well, much the same thing. But in places like Mississippi, you're having a lot of resistance from people leaving. Lots of the blacks that are there are going toward the larger cities. So you're having much of the same thing. and But you'll have leaders rise up. Also, many of them Freemasons. A lot of them rise up out of the churches because that's where you would have had educated men, men had it, that had been free prior to the, the Civil War. So throughout the South, we're seeing the same phenomena. The reason that it is escalated in the city of New Orleans is the city of New Orleans has so much wealth. And has so many free people, so many educated black people there that have read about Germany, have read about many of them have been educated in France and educated in Europe. They have descendants that are from, you know, um, many of them are the descendants of people from Cuba and Haiti. 
So there, there's a variety of ideas that are both European and Caribbean that are floating around in, in New Orleans that aren't in other places at that time. Yeah. And, and so I think one of the things that just because of the way history is taught or, or what have you is that we miss sort of what the Haitian Revolution did to Louisiana and New Orleans and the free people of color and thus into this sort of reconstruction story in terms of things that are happening. But I, I am going to 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 pull you in one direction, though, for okay. for a minute, because it becomes critical to stories that are told later about black people in in reconstruction particularly the South Carolina legislature and its sort of makeup of of Black folks there. What did the South Carolina legislature look like during Reconstruction? It was the Blackest legislature of all the former Confederate states. And it's largely because of the number of African-Americans and and the the need for slaves, particularly rice-producing slaves, tobacco-producing slaves in that territory. They were slaves everywhere. And when white voter, when white former Confederates could not vote, these men came out in record numbers. When we look at, uh, I don't know if you ever look at the, the voting numbers at the end of elections, presidential elections or, or gubernatorial elections, and you see 50% of the people went out to vote. And then you look at black districts, you got 30% of people. In these elections during Reconstruction, you'd have 85, 90% of registered black voters coming out to vote. I mean, they knew that they had to show up. They knew what it meant to be a slave if they didn't show up. So I am so glad you said that because we've had a couple of episodes so far. We started with the state of black America, which is uh, a study done by the urban league. And then we had professor Tammy Greer, who's in the political science at political science department at Clark. And we've been talking about just sort of midterms and voting and those kinds of things. These are the urban leagues number. We have 69% of black Americans who are eligible that are registered, but even in 28 in 2020, the turnout was only 62%. That was a record turnout, right? So that was a record turnout. And so there's a t-shirt and I, I hate it. Or there's a saying that it'll go around on the Internet and says, dear racism, I am not my ancestors, these hands or, you know, we're not dealing with back in the day. I think we have no idea. Part of why I wanted to have you on the show. And, and I hate when I, I hear I that, too, brother. I hate I hate that because most people don't have any idea what what black folk were like back in the day. <laughs> I have no idea, because what I'm hearing you saying is that people just out of enslavement, are taking control of their labor, building institutions. They're electing their own official, own official. They're valuing education. Valuing They're trying to own their own stuff. Families, bringing families together, all of those things. And, and even with what I'm hearing with, as told through Oscar Dunn, they have an idea that we get through Kwanzaa now about self-determination. That, hey, if this space isn't open to us, we want to build our own spaces. Yes, there is the law and we need to participate in the elections and vote and those kinds of things. But at the same time, we need to have economic power. So this whole idea of 
that somehow in 2020, because we have more technology, that we're more empowered is doesn't kind of line up with what was happening during Reconstruction. Not at all. Not at all. We were on a a trajectory. Had the election of 1876 been a clear victory for the Republicans, we would be in a whole different place. And I know this is a counterfactual argument, but I believe we'd be in a totally different place than we are today. Yeah. So before we get before we move on to sort of the end, I do want to 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 park at a pivotal year. There's a lot of talk of of sort of how how much upheaval was going on in the country during 2020 with because we had a presidential election, we had the horrific killing of George Floyd, we had the pandemic was just coming online in 2020. So people's like 2020 is the Worst of the year, worst ever. You spent a lot of time in in 1919 in Red Summer and Elaine, so we know that's another year that just like that would blow your mind, just pulling that one apart. Then, because of the popular image of the Olympics in 1968 and the protest and the killing and assassination of Dr. King and of Robert Kennedy, so 1968 is a, a sort of year of just like we've never seen this before. But 1868 is the first time that black, it's only men at this point, black men are voting in federal elections. And we have some things going on there. We have a a presidential election and we have two sort of major political violence activities going on in Memphis and in uh, Colfax. So first off, talk to me about how did black men influence the election, the presidential election of 1868. And then I want to circle back to those two incidents of violence and what they set up. Well, one of the things that Blacks began to do around the country, and um, they did this in in Louisiana also, is um, create registration systems of their own. So you know how we have a polling system and you have polling places and you register people to vote. They started doing that to see, okay, how many people can we actually get to, to register? And they go out and register black people. And then they decide, well, let, let's convince the Republicans that they want to do this. So they send their polling books to the president and they show all these thousands of people. And they're, they're, there's a strategy to this. They're trying to tell the Republicans, look, if you enfranchise black people, give them the right to vote. Y'all can stay in office forever. You know, y'all will, you know, you can control the entire country. And Republicans love this idea. They're like, okay, let's let's see what um, what this is like. So in 1868, the first elections and really 1860, 1867 and 68 are important because you have to remember they kick out all the former Confederates. And when the government takes over in 1867, they, they try to put people in that they can um, appoint, that they can trust. So for the very first time, they start turning to black people and saying, hey, how would you like to you know, have a position in the government? And the first two people that are selected for these appointments in Louisiana, um, a guy named Francis uh, Dumas, and the other individual is Oscar James Dunn. And they're both given seats on the city council. And city council was actually a bicameral council in New Orleans. They had an upper council, which Francis 
becomes the the sitting person on and Dunn becomes the member of the lower council. So for the first time, they have two black men that are sitting on the city council. And it's interesting when you go and look at sort of the minutes and what sort of suggestions they're doing in the council, because this is where you, you'll see suggestions like, OK, we, we, we can't have apprenticeship programs that are run by these individuals. So for the first time, blacks begin to have a voice. And that following year, blacks will actually have elections. And the elections were peculiar, particularly in the city of New Orleans, because the city of New Orleans has actually two distinctly different African-American communities. They have what a lot of people call the Afro-Creole community, which is largely Catholic largely Latinized traditions, French-speaking and Spanish-speaking. And then there's the Anglo-African-American community, many of which were from the English colonies that were sold there as slaves. And these two communities don't always get along with each other. So at the nominations, Francis, the guy who was on the upper council, is nominated for governor. And there's a white candidate for governor, also a Republican, and they end in a tie. So they have a second vote. And the Afro-Creole man loses the second vote. And the white man, Warmoth, is the candidate that becomes governor. Now, Dunn had known both of these men. So Dunn doesn't want to be in government anymore. He just married. He's got now a family to take care of. So he's like, I don't really want to be in government. But Mercer Langston from Ohio, Oberlin, is in town. And Mercer Langston asked him to go for a walk after the convention. So they walk up and down Canal Street, all the way to the cemeteries and back, all night. And they get home just as the sun's coming up. And his wife hears the two of them sitting on the stoop talking to each other. And he's like, look, if you do not run, he said, they're going to put two white people in. So he said, you have no choice. He said, if you want your, if you want your people to have representation, you have no choice. You can't back out and say you don't want to be lieutenant governor because you're going to run against your friend. So he decides to take on the job as a lieutenant governor, and he's elected. The very first bill that they put through was a civil rights bill. And I know people are going to say, why, why do they need to put through a civil rights bill if they just passed the 14th Amendment? That is a federal law that espouses. Well, to make sure that, you know, this is espousing a state law and can be challenged on that state level, they have to pass it as a state law. So two brothers, the, the Isabel brothers, both free black men, write the bill and the president pro temp of the legislature. So, you know, it goes through smooth as butter. And then it goes to the white Republican governor's desk. Now, Dunn had known this guy since he got there. He had actually said, okay, I'm a vouch for this guy. When that bill gets to his desk, he refuses to sign it. And all the black men in the state said, wait a second, we thought you were with us. I just don't think you guys are ready for a civil rights bill. So the Republican Party in the state of Louisiana splits immediately after they get their first black lieutenant governor. And from that point on, it's war between the radical Republicans who are really the black men in government and their supporters and the conservative Republicans who are now 
trying to keep this this boundary between black and whites is still in existence. And Dunn fights that. So what you're 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 describing is is that Louisiana is sort of a, a proving ground or an innovation ground for sort of political power. How does that translate into the sort of presidential election of 1868? How does the, all of this tie into that? Well, they throw their support done behind Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant gets elected. In fact, the very first trip that he ever takes, the very first black, all black political, black political junket takes place in 1869 when uh, Dunn takes a trip to the inauguration of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And he becomes the first uh, African-American official to be called on to, you know, to visit the president and to call on the president. He also is uh, the very first African-American official that's honored on the floor of the Senate when he gets there. And Grant comes in and Grant very much is in favor of trying to figure out, will this black thing last? You know, will black people continue to vote this way? Can we rely on black people? And what he sees in Dunn, because Dunn is such a national figure by this point, is if Dunn is able to get rid of this white Republican governor, then he might be a capable lieutenant, you know, a vice president to run alongside me in the next election, in the 1872 election. So back to again, and and Oscar Dunn is someone who, quite frankly, until you and I met, which would have been just uh, maybe it was actually this spring, the first time that we talked, I had never heard of Oscar Dunn before. So while this episode, we're talking about reconstruction just as a whole, one of the things that stands out to me in Reconstruction, you mentioned John Mercer Langston. We talked extensively about Oscar Dunn because he kind of represents sort of the best of the best during this time. But we also have Robert Smalls. We have Iron Revels. We have Kelso. I got to stop on uh, J- John Roy Lynch bec- or else my Jackson State people will 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 abandon me because every person who's ever sent a package to or or received something, you got to get that 1400 J.R. Lynch Street address to get something to a student at Jackson State. But I think that the thing that I'm getting here is sort of to, to pull us back in is what I heard is black people coming up with their own system of registration, having the savviness to understand what their agenda, what they wanted in an agenda in terms of civil rights and what black power again looks like, being able to use the vote and sort of operating as a community to determine who's in the governor's office and then to get a president elected and then potentially before Dunn's death, potentially a vice president. But before we go there, before we go there, there's also, while all of this progress is happening with Black America, there's always sort of forces or backlash that's happening at the same time. What happened in Colfax? Colfax happens in 1874. And is it 1873? 1873, I believe. Colfax is a county seat of its parish. 
and there had just been an election. And the election had been largely won by the numerous black voters that are there. You got to remember in these rural parishes, there are more slaves than there are white people. So they win this election. So it looks like they're going to have the sheriff that they want. Looks like they're going to have the representatives that they want. But the Confederate, former Confederate uh, plantation owners in all of the neighboring counties said, we're not going to let this happen. And they decide to form up, pull out their weapons, and much to like the surprise of my students, I mean, these people had cannons and stuff stored away. They show up at the county seat saying, we're going to overthrow the county. Well, Black people said, we can't just let this, we can't just let them march in there and do nothing. So they show up in mass to protect the county seat. But all they got is a handful of rifles, a few pistols. And when hundreds of white men show up with cannons, better armed, they find themselves in a losing position. So they surrender. They, and this happens on an Easter morning. Imagine when we talk about the religious symbolism, Easter morning, this is occurring. The blacks find themselves in a losing position. So they surrender. They come out, kneel down, hands on top of their heads, and the Confederates shoot them killing them dead. We still don't know an exact number, but I've seen numbers as high as 150 people died. This case will go all the way to the Supreme Court. The case is called the Cruikshank case. And what the Supreme Court rules in this case will change the outcome. It's still relevant today. The Supreme Court will say the federal authorities cannot intervene in this situation because there were no federal officials killed and there were no military soldiers killed. So we have to leave this to state courts. Now, this sends a clear message to whites in those states. All we have to do to have intimidation and violence is to control who's on the juries and who, who's the judge. A few years ago, we, we saw a huge shift in the Supreme Court. We saw huge appointments under the last administration. And it's no mistake that we're seeing dramatic changes in our nation via the courts. I want, I always tell my students, when you see strategies playing out now, a lot of times these strategies, same strategies are employed in the past. And this, the, the strategy that we're seeing now that overturned Wade is the same strategy that happened after the Cruikshank case. Hey, listen, Dr. Mitchell, one of the things that I'm still sore about is is in the 2016 election of people saying that there's no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And so if you like what the Supreme Court is doing now, then I guess that, that if you believe that the Hillary Clinton's appointees would have been the same as Trump's to federal courts and the Supreme Court, then, you know, you'd have to sell me on that. Every election really matters. Because I want to get to kind of a, a bunch of things here. You mentioned earlier, so in 1866, there was violence and it creates the districts. Now, that was in something called the Ku Klux Klan Acts, right? The Ku Klux Klan emerges around the same time as an organization that's founded by former Confederates in Shelby County, Tennessee. And the reason it could happen in Shelby County, Tennessee, is Tennessee is a state 
very quickly pledged, did their oath. So even though they were a former Confederate state, they were never divided into any of those military districts. So they were really free to govern themselves. So you get these resistance groups that form out of Shelby County, one being the Ku Klux Klan, but every former Confederate state had them. Louisiana had the Camellia, the Knights of the White Camellia. They had the White League. And these were all terrorist groups bent on restoring what they saw as the natural order. And that natural order meant that Blacks should always be servile to the white community, that Blacks should never be able to, uh, to raise their social status above that of whites. And so are these groups, is it a stretch to when you talked about the, the White League or the Red Shirts, the Ku Klux Klan, they're not just sort of vigilante groups. They're vigilantes who are aiming towards, yes, the social order, but also they are political control. Political they, control. They are, they are political paramilitary groups. groups led by, and many of them have the exact same structures as the military organizations for which the, the, they're drawing their, their membership from. So many of these people are colonels and generals in the Confederacy, and they're leading their very same troops that they were leading in the Confederacy. So these are paramilitary groups. They are paramilitary groups of sort of the political arm of the Democrats, who were the conservatives, who were the party of white supremacy at that time in the 1800s. There's not a separate, this is not just a group of sort of low-class white folks in the South behaving badly. These are organized groups, and they are there to intimidate Black people to in, put in fact, back. New, new, new laws had to be written. New crimes had to be created for them. In fact, there was a, a crime called night riding, uh, and that means to, you know, t- to do these terroristic acts and cover your face under uh, and do this under the cover of night. So they were going to these black schools. They were educating blacks, burning them down. They were going to churches, burning those churches down. They were going to these registration, these individuals that are traveling around doing registration and killing them. They're lynching black leadership or shooting black leaders. So wholesale violence on all sorts of level directed at the African-American community. So as we so because we're 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 taking a and I appreciate your time on this. So I want to sort of move us forward. But we have during this period of Reconstruction, we have significant amount of legislative victories, 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. We have civil rights that are introduced in in 1866 is the first Civil Rights Act. We have great gains through political sort of organizing in the form of people like Oscar Dunn, in the form of people like J.R. Lynch, in the form of people like Robert Smalls, who are organizing their legislatures. We have a move towards education, families, building institutions, and all of those things. Now, you touched on it earlier. What sort of brings Reconstruction to a halt? Well, first, it's the Col- the Colfax Act allows for this the, and the successful use of violence at Colfax shows them this can be a political strategy that we can employ. 
We could use violence, intimidation to keep people from the polls. We can use violence and intimidation to kill people who get in elected office. And we can turn this whole situation around if we can get a new president in and he can just reverse all the stuff that that came before it. So you begin to see escalating violence and this escalating violence will reach its crescendo in 1876. And the 1876 election is so corrupt that the federal government will have to do congressional investigation of it afterwards. In fact, I mean, if anybody wants to go online and Google that, they can actually read the testimonies from those federal elections at Google Books. You can go in there and just Google election of 1860, uh, 1876 and uh, congressional investigation, and it'll pull it up. But in two states in particular, there's a lot of violence, really three, if you count Mississippi. Mississippi, Louisiana, and Florida. And the violence is so widespread, the intimidation is so widespread that people are saying that the election has to be thrown out completely and redone. In electoral votes, neither candidate has enough votes to win. So we find ourselves in a position where it's a dead tie. And the House of Representatives is supposed to determine the outcome of this tie. And the compromise that is reached was a secret compromise. And in fact, it's not written down anywhere. And it's been passed on to us through oral history. But the men who decide on this in the House of Representatives say, "Okay, Democrats will meet with these Republican leaders in the House and they come up with this agreement. Democrats say, we'll give you the presidency, but we want five things, only five things we want. Keep in mind, Republicans just want the presidency. They want to keep control of the executive office. So the the Democrats want five things. And you got to ask yourself, what are the five things they want? First, immediate, immediate withdrawal of all the troops from the South. All the remaining troops in the South, we want them gone. Number two, no matter what happens to black people, can't get involved. Got to look the other way. Number three, we want a cabinet level position and they, they wanted a cabinet level position that had some authority. And it's a really important which one they get. They get the postmaster general. And most people today are like, why would you want postmaster general? There's other jobs. Why would secretary of war? Postmaster general was a huge patronage position. Outside of the Department of War, the next department that had the most jobs was the the post office. So they get all of these these privileged jobs that they can give out, dole out to their friends, gets political support. They wanted a railroad because all the railroads ran up to the north to Chicago and then went over. So you had to get to ship anything. You had to ship it north and then ship it over to the east. They said, we want a railroad line that runs all the way through the South, East, West. So we don't have to ship our goods up in these Northern railroads. They get that. Then they give them an agreement that we're going to go to banks in the North and we're going to borrow money. So you guys can rebuild the South. Now it's, it's borrowed money, right? That rebuilds the South. You have to ask yourself, how do they pay back the money? In most States after the 1890s, what you're going to see, most states, the most profitable business in every state will be the prison system. So what they do to build a railroad, they lease out convicts. They take that money 
So they don't have to be, the planners don't have to be taxed and they use that money to pay down those loans. So the people who had been slaves are re-enslaved and then made to pay back all the money that was borrowed to rebuild the South. So I have never heard this. So I always, when when I'm asking that question, I'm certainly expecting to pull out of federal troops. That whole point about the railroad and the convict leasing, I'd never heard about heard before. So first off, was the railroad, it was Atlanta part of that sort of railroad hub? Yes. Okay. So I'd never heard any of this. And and this is for me, Mark Dawson. I don't know. I'm not speaking for Dr. Brian Mitchell. But whenever I hear about a case for reparations, now I've got a whole new thing to add up because it's not just enslavement that unpaid labor it's not just the sort of period of redlining, but what I'm hearing now is the sort of building out of the railroads and the repayment of the debt for the South to rebuild itself in order to rebuild this economic muscle. It is like this is when you hear that term, the New South, the New South was paid for by by sharecroppers and convicts and convicts. And convicts. That's how white planner, the planner class kept all their money, was able to do the infrastructure changes without having taxation. So there it is. And and so, listen, well, let me ask you, let me ask you this. And this, I think this ties into it. Two things. And I'll, I'll start here first. Why is it that I'm fairly well-educated person and I'm a person who sort of seeks out information and I know people who have, you know, two or three advanced degrees and know so little about reconstruction. Why is that? Okay. There are two things. Uh, Remember what I said about Tennessee being this sort of open state because they, they very quickly pledged the oath. Um, A lot of people run there, but one person in particular runs there. Um, He runs there from Virginia, and he's a newspaper editor. His name is Edward Pollard. And Edward Pollard was a down-in-the-wool Confederate, believed in the whole slavery 100% in his soul. But what he realized the war did was sort of break the spirit of the South. And he said, well, we can't have this. We, We, you know, in order for us to rise again, We have to rewrite this narrative. So as soon as the Civil War ended, he began writing a book called The Lost Cause. And in in this book, he'll write a, a sequel to the book called The Lost Cause Revisited. And in The Lost Cause Revisited, what he tries to do is reshape the narrative. And he said, no, the South actually wasn't fighting to retain slavery. What the South was fighting for was the idea that whites have to always be supreme over all the other races. And this was, you have to remember, you might think of Abraham Lincoln as progressive, but he was progressive for his time period. He still didn't believe that blacks were equal to whites. Most whites in the North, even the abolitionists, did not believe that blacks were equal to whites. So everybody embraced this idea. Now, fast forward 10 years, and the Plessy case has happened, and they're separate but equal. Immediately, what the um, white establishment wants to do is reaffirm the ideas that the Civil War was a good thing. 
So they begin putting up monuments everywhere and even sponsoring those monuments. If your town was too poor to buy a, a statue, you could apply for a grant from the Daughters of the American Revolution and they'd help you put together the money to get you a Confederate statue in your town center. And it's no accident that schools, that city halls, that all the important places where people did business, there were reminders of white supremacy. Yeah. And listen, you can, for anyone listening, I may put up a video that I did on the trip to Arlington. There's a, a monument there in Arlington Cemetery, which is the National Cemetery. And it has a full on, it's a monument to the Confederacy. And it's right there in Arlington Cemetery. And so it's a part of this whole Lost Cause and the United Daughters of Confederacy. They're sort of public art rhetoric. And then what they did to, to textbooks, we just don't have enough time for it. But you can see a mammy figure there and how they're depicting what they believe the Old South was and what Black people were. And then there's an enslaved, uh, a portrait or, or a carving of an know, enslavement. Do you know the story of the cemetery, though? Do you know who lived at what was at the cemetery before? I'm going to let you tell it. I think I know it, but I don't want to get the answer wrong. I'm, I'm trying to get an A, so I'll let you yeah, tell that, it. That was, that was Robert E. Lee's Robert plantation. E. Yeah. That was like and initially what they did was when they had all these cat contrabands and that's what they called the freedmen who were yeah. just marching around with the armies. When they, when they died, they didn't have any place to bury them. They have any money. So they, they buried them all on Lee's plantation. And then they took Lee's plantation from him and they started burying soldiers and they, they, they said, okay, if he sues us and tries to get his land back, then he has to live every day with what he did, you know, with all his dead bodies of, of soldiers. And his family did sue and win. They actually won the plantation black. But by that point, there was like 50,000, 60,000 soldiers buried there. So what they did was just sell it to the federal government and the federal, the federal government made it our national cemetery. But a lot of people don't know. I, I, I you know, I have my uh, Boy Scout troop, and we we often talk about and uh, we do the citizenship uh, in the nation. We talk about Arlington Cemetery, who's buried there, where it came from. So that used to be uh, Lee's family plantation, and it's huge too. So it, it leads. so one thing about going to Arlington or. And this could be a whole nother episode. I, I spent some time in Mount Vernon recently. There's no way you, you can visit Mount Vernon and not know that you are visiting a plantation first. Yes, the first president of the United States lived there and it was his plantation, but it was a plantation first. All right. So that we can wrap up because there's so much here. Oscar Dunn is a name that I did not know of until I met you. How did you come on uh, up on Oscar Dunn? Oscar Dunn is a distant relative of mine, but the first time I'd ever read about him, I was at my great-grandmother's house. And my great-grandmother kept scrapbooks. She didn't even watch television. You know, you go to her house, you looking at magazines, old Ebony and Jet magazines or, or photo albums. She had the scrapbook and I was going through and I saw this article about Oscar James Dunn. And I said, um, Grandma, her name was uh, Maddie Dunn. I said, uh, 
says, he has the same last name that you do. And she's like, yeah, that was your, 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 your great grandfather, Emmanuel's uncle. And I said, really? And that same week, it was 1976 and it, it was bicentennial year. So everything we were doing in school had to do with government and being proud yeah. to be an American. So I went back to school the next day. I felt empowered because I thought I knew something that none of the other kids knew. The teacher said, does anybody know any other governors or lieutenant governors of the state besides the current one? I raised my hand up and I said, yes, um, yes, ma'am. And she called on me and I said, Oscar James Dunn. And she said, who's that? And I said, he was lieutenant a governor of, of the state. And she said, um, tell us a little about him. I said, he was the first African-American lieutenant governor in the United States. And she said, there's never been a black lieutenant governor of our state. And I, I messed up and I said, I raised my hand again. I said, no, there's been three of them. And I said, there's PBS Pinchback after him. And then there was Cesar Antoine after him. And she got upset and she sent me to the office. I went to school through high school in Louisiana. Never heard of these men in any class I had. Did not hear of these men, these men's names outside of my own family until I got to college. And had my first, and, and then this, this is going to sound sad, and it is, my very first, not, not just African-American professor, but first Black male teacher in my entire life it was a man by the name of Raphael Casimir. And he's a professor. He's retired now. He's emeritus. And he taught Louisiana construct, Reconstruction. And I, you know, I said, Hey, I, I know that you know, that name. And he's like, we started talking and I took every class I possibly could with him. And then he introduced me to Joe Lewis Caldwell, which was a, another African-American professor, took every class I could possibly with him. And, you know, I changed my major. In fact, you know, I was thinking about going to med school and I became a historian instead. I fell in love with it. But when it came time to write my dissertation, there'd been nothing written about done. There'd been no major pieces. There'd been three articles where the whole, well, three or four articles were the wealth of everything that uh, had been written about Dunn. So I decided to try to do him justice and write a biography of him. And I, I did that as a dissertation. And when it came time to publish the dissertation, I got a call from a kid in Ohio who had read it. He, his entire, I think it was like sixth grade class, fifth grade class was reading it. I'm like, y'all were reading a 350 page, you know, dissertation. And, and he's like, yeah, it's a GT class, gifted, talented. And he said, um, but, you know, I talked to him and his father on the phone and I asked the kid at the end of the conversation, I said, um, you really liked it? And he said, yeah, I really liked it. He said, you know, they should have you should they should have more stories like this for black children. And so I decided to uh, make a graphic history. And I decided to do that first publication as a graphic history on Oscar James Dunn. And um, it's not like a little comic book. It's a real solid book <laughs> with footnotes. Yeah, it's not solid. No, it is. It yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've, I've had, I guess, a great deal of success with it. It's won a lot of awards. And, uh, you know, I speak at a lot of different schools. And I go and I, I help the teachers um, teach it and uh, make sure they have primary sources if they need to. 
So I, I think that's important that a lot of times we want to write a, a book for an academic audience because those are our peers and you want, you know, oh, your peers to thank you and say you did a wonderful book. But also you, you also want to give back to those communities, to those kids that need heroes, that, that need voices, that, that need a, a, to see people that look like them. And I think that mission was more important than my peers loving a book that I wrote. And many of them have enjoyed the book. So I was very, very proud that a, a lot of people like Eric Foner, who really well known, read the book and gave it really good critiques. And, you know, that's all you can ask for as a historian. Yeah, no. Hey, I I I recommend it. Listen, it's a graphic novel, but I recommend it for anyone who's interested in in this period and also learning more about Black history. And I will tell you, you know, thank you for sharing the story there. And there are two things as we sort of move on. One, you know, a lot is said about January sixth, and there's the the sort of January sixth hearings going on here, going on here in the country right now. And people will correctly say that the Capitol hadn't been breached before. But the idea of political violence as a tool to overthrow an election is not the first time in the United States. Not by not by a, even a, a, a little stretch. It's, I mean, it's been tried many, many times in many places. Been tried a lot of times. And as we go through and I urge black parents to as we have this madness of anti-CRT, which is not even about CRT. We know that that's that's not what it's about. It's about teaching Black history and controlling the narrative to be vigilant and providing children with resources and also pushing back on these school districts that, you know, are trying to squash uh, true and accurate history. So, Dr. Mitchell, two questions as as we close. One, we ask everyone on the Parlay and All Blue a sort of introspective question. And everybody has their own answer, family, or whatever it may be. What does it mean to live well? Well, if you asked me at different phases of my life, I, I probably would have told you different things. You know, when you grow up a poor kid, it's easy to look at living well as having certain things. But as I've grown older, my concept of living well has has changed dramatically. You know, I want to live a life that when I pass, which we all inevitably will, my children can look back at me and be proud. I like that. I like that. That's awesome. And so You've mentioned uh, several times about being a New Orleanian. New Orleanian? Am I saying that properly? You're from New, New Orleans. Orleans. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so I I think that this one, you probably got some information there or, or you should be able to handle this one. If there is a holy grail of New Orleans musicians, and let's call it five, and uh, five New Orleans musicians and, and sort of to, to help out here because New Orleans got a rich musical history. Doesn't have to be an individual. It could be a family, i.e. the Andrews or Neville's or Marcellus's, or it could be a group like the Meters or however you want to answer it. Who are the five? What's the holy grail of New Orleans music? Louis Armstrong for me, um, it would be number one. Pops. He is... And he becomes an ambassador, an international ambassador for jazz music. He popularizes jazz music, not just in the United States, but all over the world. 
Ellis Marcellus. He's often called the father of, of jazz here. I, I was fortunate enough to know Ellis and to have him as he was my uh, jazz history teacher. Okay. Um, so, uh, I, I love, I love uh, the great Ellis Marcellus. I, I know his family well. We can't under, underestimate the style uh, and the importance of Wenton uh, Marcellus. Mahalia Jackson would be my number four. And my number five, oh, there's it's, it's so many people to choose from for number five. But I would probably say, mm, I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism for this, Fats Domino. Fats Domino. Okay, I, I yeah. don't think we're going to get any pushback from that. Now, I'm going to tell you that somebody's going to say there's no Neville Brothers, there's no Meters, there's no Jelly Roll Morton. There's- if I could, if I could have a list, it'd be a hundred people long. <laughs> so I, I get it. No, that's a great list. So I will tell you that my wife and I went to see Ellis Marcellus in. Our plan was to see Ellis Marcellus. I want to say it was early in 2019 that we were there. We we're going to see him at Snug Harbor, but he was ill, and so he didn't come. We saw a great performance by Herlin Riley instead, who came in and filled in for him there. So that was it was a great performance. And Went Marcellus is my is my number one. Right, I've seen Winton either via his septet or at Jazz and Lincoln Center, whether in Lincoln Center in New York or on the road in various cities that have been in. So, listen, that and Mahalia Jackson, I'm glad you mentioned Ellis Marcellus because not just as a as a musician, but what he's done as a teacher, as a jazz educator. I mean, if you look at sort of... Terrence Blanchard. Terrence Blanchard. Donald Harris. All of these people came all, from yes, there, you know. The whole thing. He, and he, he, he helped found NOCA when we talk about the School of the Arts that gave us, you know, Trombone Shorty and some of these other fantastic, you know, that, that wouldn't exist if it weren't for Ellis, you know. And, and then, you know, if you look at then sort of Winton's tree of Roy Hargrove and, I mean, Nicholas Payton is, is, is from New Orleans, but, I mean, it just goes on and on. So, Dr. Mitchell, I have so appreciated your time here, and I think there's several nuggets that I would leave for the audience, and we may have to come back and, and revisit the free people of color in Haiti. That's a big one. Elaine. Elaine, 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 1860 expulsion of free blacks from Arkansas. Yeah, the expulsion of free blacks from Arkansas, Memphis. I do some stuff on redlining. So if you, yeah, um, so my wife's from a town that they took the whole town over and moved all the black people out of the town. It's called, um, the town is called uh, West Rock. It was in Little Rock, it was right on the periphery of Little Rock. Yeah, they took the whole community over and moved it entirely. Yeah, yeah, you know, and so when you we're we're saying that, um, you know, and even uh, just to an, an audience, just just this is all good stuff. It is unplanned, so just here here where we are. But I don't think we can disconnect sort of these images of when we we talk about sort of white supremacy and political power. And Elaine and all of this from from enslavement and then and the wanting to maintain the 
economic order and the social order. So if you can draw a connection from the Civil War to the founding of the Ku Klux Klan to them naming their first leader, Nathan Bedford Forrest, you're talking about one person there, right? And you're also talking about a notorious slave trader, right, who is trading human beings, a, a human trafficker. And I don't know if he actually had land in sort of Phillips County or Elaine or what have you, but I do know that he had plantations or certainly had trafficked people throughout the Delta in that Tennessee area, the Delta, the Arkansas Delta and the Mississippi Delta. So, and and he's again, someone who had these big monuments and, and is memorialized. I mean, there are subdivisions here and streets named, they're, they're called named forests or Bedford forests and all of these things. So anyway, that's, that's that. Dr. Mitchell, I appreciate you so much. Everyone else, why don't you all hang out and thank you for sticking with us on the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.